Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I am your host, Snowden Bishop, and I'm glad you could join us today. We've reached a tipping point with the marijuana movement, and it's gaining momentum on multiple fronts. Medical breakthroughs are being discovered daily. States are enjoying the budgetary relief, and many are putting money into good use in education and vital social programs. Legalized cannabis industry is seeing economic potential, the likes of which we haven't seen since the start of the dot-com era. Private investors are coming out in droves to help pioneering entrepreneurs claim their stake in cultivation, retail operations, and medical development. Business is thriving, although it's not without some challenges. Most notably, the federal prohibition is still clinging to the last bastion of the war on drugs, and that's not likely to change anytime soon. As a result, banks that are federally regulated haven't made it easy for businesses to conduct normal transactions. But despite those setbacks, the financial community remains giddy with excitement about the future. So much so that we're seeing more and more companies with new funds and development enterprises go public in the stock markets. According to the CDC, ArcView, and the Marijuana Business Factbook, the cannabis industry is surpassed only by the alcohol and tobacco industries in consumable demand. But the stock market is its own beast and seems to be impacted by politics, stigmata, and legislative activity more than what's actually transpiring on the ground. Interestingly, some publicly traded companies are keeping day traders on their toes, trying to keep up with the volatility. Some of the biggest publicly traded companies, however, are showing returns up to 500%, while others are still limping along. One thing is certain, the marijuana industry is here to stay. So for people who remain skeptical about cannabis, it's important they understand that it is a serious business. That's the topic of today's show, and I'm excited to introduce our guest. But before we get started, Dr. Donner, our medical marijuana expert, has our Medical Marijuana Minute update. What do you have for us today? 
Well, thank you, Snowden. Today, I'd like to talk about the importance of preserving medical marijuana programs as more states consider implementing adult use, otherwise known as recreational use laws. While the economic upside of the recreational market garners a lot of the spotlight, it's very important to keep in mind that the medical side has been critical to the industry's entire evolution. And in fact, I feel we're truly initiated. When you examine the numbers, it's clear that it will continue to do so in the future. Industry analysts at New Frontier have projected that the U.S. medical marijuana market will reach $11 billion by 2020. Florida's market alone is expected to reach $1.6 billion, and then further estimates reveal that states like Ohio, Michigan, and Pennsylvania will also be key players. The integration of medical cannabis into our healthcare system has been a tremendous accomplishment, especially considering that this was initiated by a patient-centered movement. It's important to the acceptance, integration, and expansion of the cannabis industry as a whole, which cannot be underestimated. For the legal cannabis industry to progress and move forward, we need to work toward improving acceptance of medical marijuana into mainstream medicine. Healthcare providers, business leaders, and policymakers need to be open to establishing a more inclusive and progressive dialogue. In my personal opinion, this will also help establish and maintain credibility to influence the DEA's eventual consideration of removing marijuana from the Schedule One listing. That will be more likely to happen if medical marijuana programs remain in place even after adult use measures are passed. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for the Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden. Thank you so much, Dr. Donner. We'll look forward to hearing from you again next week. The Cannabis Reporter will be at the World Medical Marijuana Conference and Expo in Pittsburgh this April, and it promises to be an amazing event, so stay tuned for that, and we'll talk more about that next week. So let's get started. I am delighted to introduce Hadley Ford. He parlayed years of experience in banking and healthcare industries to his current position as founder and CEO of iAnthus Capital Holdings. And before that, he was an investment banker at Goldman Sachs and co-founder and chief executive of Procure Treatment Centers. Welcome to you, Hadley. I'm so glad you're here. Snowden, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on today. You know, I, I am so intrigued by what is happening with, with the publicly traded companies versus the private investment firms that are really supporting this industry. And I just want to get like the bird's eye view of what you think is going on in the financial realm in terms of the marijuana business. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's actually the, the whole reason that we formed Ianthus. Um, because of the federal prohibition against cannabis in the United States and the states taking the lead, you have this strange anomaly where cannabis entrepreneurs are given a license or earn a license and they have the ability to sell uh, medical cannabis or recreational in, in eight states now, but they don't really have any access to what I'd call regular way institutional capital. As you rightly point out, really the only avenue for funding either a startup or a growth capital or buying out a partner or if you want to sell your business, how's someone going to finance it? It's really that private market, the wealthy individual or in some rare instances, the family office that will step in. Um, and you don't have the usual Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Citibanks, KKRs of the world that usually provide all of that type of financing that would help any uh, regular way industry uh, support itself. The private market you know, that checks cash, but you know, it tends to be fickle, it tends to be volatile, it tends to be very expensive. And if you're an entrepreneur, uh, it's also difficult sometimes to even know how to access it. So what we've seen is, you know, I, I think probably 
um, you know, kind of a, a hold back on what the growth potentials might be with, within the industry because people don't have access to capital. Uh, we noticed that the Canadian public markets, unlike any capital market in the world, public or private, uh, you had um, cannabis operators regularly issuing securities and cannabis investors uh, actually buying those securities. Now, there were Canadian operators and Canadian investors, but our thought was if we could structure something where we could raise money publicly in Canada, we will be able to make those funds available for the uh, cannabis entrepreneurs here in the United States. So are the regulations for raising capital for cannabis much different in Canada than they are here? Yeah, because you've, you've got a situation where the federal government and the provincial government in Canada are aligned. Um, so it's legal on a medical basis everywhere in the country. Um, the rules are set. Everyone has to play by the same rules. And that's allowed for an orderly formation of a public market. Now, it's smaller than you would find for you know, a tech innovation in the United States because you know, Canada is a smaller country and a smaller market. But nonetheless, you have banks that are active, uh, research analysts, salespeople, traders. Uh, when we go up for meetings in uh, Canada, you know, we'll go to the 40th floor of a skyscraper in Toronto with sweeping views and people show up in suits and ties and ask us questions about units and margins. And you know, it's a regular way business and people take it seriously. And you know, I'd estimate because of that, the Canadian capital markets are probably three to five years ahead of where we would expect to see the United States. Uh, see the United States. Yeah. So, it, it's interesting that you make reference to the fact that they actually show up in in suits. It's not. It's there. There is a misconception, I think, about the cannabis industry among the people who really haven't taken the time to research it, and that is that it's sort of relegated to the hippies, if you will. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, look, it's it's. Um, I'll, I'll pull my inner Donald Trump and blame the media for this, but look, a story about conservative guys successfully building a business is interesting, but not nearly as interesting as a story about a couple of dudes who you know decide to get into the business, or you know guys who are taking wheelbarrows of cash to the bank, or people with AK-47s defending their grow in the hinterlands. You know, those stories are much more entertaining and interesting. But, you know, I think by and large, the vast number of people in the business are you know, just like entrepreneurs you find in any sector. Uh, they wake up at three in the morning worrying about making payroll. They uh, stay and burn the midnight oil to ensure product quality is top notch. And the only difference is they don't have the usual advantages you would in another entrepreneurial market. They don't have access to capital. And because of the sort of stigma and federal illegal piece of it. You don't have the usual um, sort of what I call camp followers to that capital as well. You don't have your top flight law firms, you know, white shoe law firms, accounting firms, uh, consultants, advisors that would tip you typically find. So these entrepreneurs, you know, they really have to do this on their own, not just from a capital perspective, but from you know, kind of everything else, whether it's you know, HR or operations or quality control or point of sale systems, you know, it's all being invented and, and solutions being found on the fly. You know, that creates, uh, you know, that creates a very interesting opportunity for um, capital providers such as ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've been watching some of the stocks that, that are on the over-the-counter uh, trading yeah. markets and um, and also on the exchanges too, and I think it's it's pretty interesting how how 
they seem to be much more volatile and much more <laughs> yeah. um, dependent upon, you know, politics and, and you know, state legislation. I mean, we've seen these incredible upswings. I remember back in 2012 when, when a number of states were added to um, both legalization for adult use and also for medical and at that time, it brought the number of states up to 24, which is almost at that tipping point. And I remember watching as, as these new publicly traded companies had returns of three, 4,000 <laughs> percent. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, a couple of weeks later, there was this huge profit taking and all of a sudden they dropped to levels. And I think that those companies have really had a tough time um, bringing it back up because a lot of those same companies that were early adopters on the stock exchange, they've, um, they've just been limping along, but yet they're very well established and seem to have good business models and all of that. I mean, how, how can you explain to, uh, how can you explain that phenomenon that it's very well, difficult? Yeah, I, I would, I would obviously, I'd actually take the opposite tact in that, you know, once, uh, once the cannabis world started getting a little cachet and hoopla behind it, you basically had 300 companies in the United States that were, you know, Joe's Mining Company changed their name to Joe's Cannabis Company, and then the uh, sort of the classic uh, euphoria and animal spirits took over. And I would say if you went through those 300 companies, you know, maybe 290 of them, you know, didn't really have a cannabis uh, business plan or team or operations that. You know, one from a typical security perspective would say, yeah, that's a stock I'm going to buy and hold long term. And I think they were mostly speculative, uh, almost like, you know, buying a pure option in the marketplace, you know, that someone would uh, be able to execute on a business plan that they put forth in a prospectus. And that's what a lot of these things were. You know, there used to be something else. And then they said, I've got a business plan to do X, Y or Z. You know, they hire some guy who, you know, was a grower or knew something about cannabis and you know, maybe they work, maybe they don't, but they, they weren't, you know, sort of usually what you'd see in any other orderly capital formation around technology or medical devices or anything where you'd actually see, you know, management team with deep experience backed by a VC, you know, who you know, bought some gravitas and experience to the board, you know, actually had deep pockets to ensure you could get through good times and bad times. And then approach, approach the public markets with, you know, real stories, real disclosure, real backing, that market doesn't exist. You've got a handful of pioneers in the U.S. who, you know, I think you know, can make a go of it, but you, you haven't seen that that sort of step function in capital formation and company building that you would see in a normal sector. Compare and contrast that to what's happened in Canada, where you've really seen that, um, you know, companies that have uh, deep management experience. They've got, uh, you know, boards they, from a regulatory perspective. There's you know, real disclosure that has to occur. I mean, that's one of the reasons we actually went to Canada as well, not just because the money was there, but because sort of the, the investor confidence around the rest of the infrastructure and the market and the disclosure requirements and the regulatory oversight from it, I think would give our investors, including Canadian institutional and hopefully in the future, U.S. institutional investors comfort that, you know, they're real companies, real securities, real teams, real business plans, real cash flow, uh, as opposed to kind of the pink sheet stuff that was going on in the U.S. I think it would be very difficult for a company, 
uh, of our size. And you know, cannabis companies tend to be micro cap. You know, the largest of them are you know, single digit billion, which would qualify still as you know, small cap or maybe medium cap in that yeah. <laughs> in some, some explanation of it. But <clears throat> when you're that size, you know, you want institutional investors to have a sense of what the disclosure is. And in Canada, you have that. You've got you know, companies that are you know, been vetted by real law firms, real banks. They do bought deals, marketed deals. You know, they've raised close to a billion dollars over the last couple of years in that marketplace. You compare to that to the U.S., you know, there's just there's some companies that are down here, but you know, the opportunity for them to go raise 20 or 30 million dollars in a regular way, marketed deal, just doesn't exist because you don't have the banking infrastructure, research, legal infrastructure. You don't have the backing of the exchanges to do that. You know, Nasdaq has you know, repeatedly denied people access to the exchange. So again, it comes back to where's the best and most efficient place to raise capital? It is the Canadian markets. Yeah. The question is, can you raise money in the Canadian markets and use it in the U.S.? And you know, I think we've I think we've answered that question. That yes, you can do that, and you know, hopefully we'll you know, do bigger and better and broader deals going forward. And the other thing is that in Canada, you have the backing of the government too. That federal stamp of approval matters. You know, in the U.S. You know, we hear a lot of brouhaha about, um, you know, Trump and Sessions, but people forget, you know, the Obama administration wasn't particularly friendly. If you go back and read Loretta Lynch's um, confirmation testimony or uh, Eric Holder's, you know, they, they weren't saying great things about uh, cannabis. Loretta Lynch was saying, yeah, I, I'm not in favor of legalization and it's against the law. You know, the administration, Obama administration, didn't move to decriminalize or deschedule cannabis. So, yeah, it's it's a problem. It's a yeah. problem that sort of is overarching. I think there's an uneasy uh, truce that has um, developed between states' rights and between the uh, uh, the federal government. It's actually somewhat amusing to see people sitting in different chairs than they usually do, right? I mean, you've got uh, Republicans or states' rights having to be in favor of cannabis because it's states' rights, and you have Democrats who typically are more favor in a centralized government all of a sudden, you know, arguing for states' rights. But I think it's the right way forward, uh, you know, and I think that's I think everyone's comfortable with it, even if it's not a perfect solution. Right. Well, it's it's you know obvious that that it's here to stay because I mean eventually the policy is going to have to catch up with the public demand and with the science too for that matter I mean clearly it has medical use which means that the schedule one aspect of it is completely ridiculous but eventually it really will have to catch up and speaking of partisanship it's very surprising to me that more conservative leaning politicians are not completely in favor of this because I mean, when you think of personal freedoms and you think of the mm-hmm. financial upside, I mean, for a conservative, a, a financial conservative or an economic conservative, it makes complete sense to open up this market and let it start bringing in some tax revenue and helping people just in general. I mean, it's just, it's crazy to me. But No, it's, you're, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, even... Even Trump, he said, Trump himself said in 1990 or 91 that, you know, the war on drugs is a waste of time and money. They ought to legalize all drugs. I, I don't think you can find too many politicians that sort of take that tack. But, you know, cannabis, call a spade a spade. I mean, the market exists, right? I mean, it's a yeah. $50 billion black market. Um, it's been around for, you know, thousands of years. 
And you can either have it in the light where you can have education and regulation and tax, or you can have it in the dark and you know, the Mexican cartels can put $50 billion in their pockets. I think everybody on the right side of the aisle, the left side of the aisle, I think they can all agree you'd rather have, if it's going to happen, you'd rather have it be regulated and taxed uh, and research done. And, you know, frankly, the only way within the current construct to have that done is through states' rights and having the states take the leadership. And, you know, fortunately, that's what we've seen. I think the biggest sort of loss in that model, as you point out, is because it's still Schedule One, you can't really do research on it. You know, you just, you're just not going to get physicians and academic centers and you know, the people who typically take leadership on the sort of cutting edge aspect of you know, writing protocols and pursuing them to do that way it's schedule one matter of fact they can't do it without sort of an express waiver from the government mm-hmm. and just statistically i mean if you just look at the number of cannabinoid receptors in the human body the number of cannabinoids in cannabis you run that math, you're going to find some pretty damn good applications from a medical perspective you know, oh, yeah. from well, what you do the research. <laughs> it's true. And and last week we were mentioning that in terms of the research and stuff like that, I mean, if you were to go on to pubmeds.gov and type in the word marijuana as a keyword search, there are 24,000 studies that have already been done that prove safety and efficacy, and it's not just on animals. I mean, there are actually a lot of human clinical studies that are in controlled environments, and I know that there are thousands that are currently underway in states where they have actually legalized use. So these are not government-sanctioned studies, but they're definitely being done in reputable universities and medical institutions, and it's amazing to me um, that with all this research that does exist, that there's still a problem. I found it really interesting because when I was looking through your investor deck, I noticed that your investors come from Canada mainly. Is that correct? Or are they Americans investing in Canadian, in the Canadian company? How does that yeah, work? It's, well, it's, it's sort of interesting. I mean, it, we, we, um, we raised some private money originally in that primarily came out of the U.S., and then we uh, created the public vehicle, and we went public in Canada, and then we did a, a, a big public offering up in Canada. So originally, we had more U.S. investors, but now, you know, I would say the uh, the lion's share of investors at least have purchased the shares on the Canadian exchange, and, you know, when we did the public offering up there, it was probably... 100% non-U.S. investors, or at least through vehicles that were not registered in the U.S. It's hard to know now kind of how many of our investors are actually Canadian and how much are U.S. My guess is that you've probably got some U.S. retail presence you know, playing the market through the Canadian uh, exchange. Um, I think anyone from an institutional perspective is still Canadian. I've not seen or heard of any U.S. institutions, you know, like Fidelity or uh, CalPERS or anyone buying our stock. Um, And, you know, frankly, I haven't seen them be that active up in the Canadian markets for any of the issuers. But, you know, my my guess is right now it's uh, sort of an offshore capital market, whether that's Canadian investors or guys out of Asia or Europe playing in the uh, exchanges up there. But, you know, I have heard rumors that some U.S. institutions are buying Canadian issuers, you know, through some of their offshore uh, vehicles. But we, we ourselves, 
as far as I know, don't have any U.S. institutional ownership. Right. But most of your business takes place in the U.S., though, correct? Yes, that is that is correct. You know, that's that was the supposition theory we had theory that we had that we could educate the Canadian and international investor that there was not just an opportunity in the Canadian markets, but there was also uh, a bigger and broader opportunity in the U.S. markets. And there's a very limited number of public opportunities uh, in which you can invest to participate in the growth of the market down here. And you know, I think there's been uh, there's been a lot of interest for sure. I've had hundreds of meetings and been to dozens of conferences up in Canada. And it's clear the Canadian investor who understands cannabis says, yeah, I like the Canadian market as well they should. It's I think going to be a big growth market. But the U.S. market is you know, 30 times the size right now. Um, and that's pretty compelling. And there's you know, fewer stocks that they can invest in the U.S. than they can in Canada to play that growth. So I think that is part of the interest, both from a fundamental and technical perspective. Yeah. But uh, another thing that I found interesting is that you sort of preempted uh, Massachusetts uh, because they just recently legalized for adult use. Mm-hmm. And and I noticed that, I mean, because you must have set that up a while back before the law was passed, obviously. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, we, we, like, we like the medical opportunity in Massachusetts and then just serendipitously, you know, kind of while we're in that process, um, uh, the referendum was put forth and then it passed. But, you know, the medical program there was going to be you know, very successful. They have a broad list of indications and a broad form of ingestion methods and a licensing process that, generally tends to make it more oligopoly-like than uh, free market. So those are all good structural components that we look for when we, we make our investments. So were you in Colorado then as a company prior to the adult use legalization? No, no. And, you know, typically it's, you know, a, a place like Colorado, if you get in early, it's the same view we have in California you know, it's so wide open, it's so hard to pick who the winners and losers will be at the starting gate. You know, if we're going to be in early, we like a restricted license market where we can back someone, finance someone who has a license and only a handful of competitors. You can be pretty certain that you may not be the leader, but it's pretty certain you're not going to get driven out of business. But, you know, you go to a state like Colorado, then you just have thousands of licenses. I think there's, you know, 600 storefronts and you know, all kinds of processors and grows, and you just got a lot of competition. It's easier for us in a situation like that to wait, see how the market develops, because the leaders are going to need capital to grow their successful businesses, and the guys who haven't been quite so success- successful probably need to be sold, uh, need to have their balance sheets fixed, or need capital to sort of reinvent themselves. And it's a lot, a lot more easy to do your diligence at that point. You can see where their locations are, you can see what their customer or patient bases. You can look at their margins. You can look at their pricing trends. And, you know, frankly, because of the dearth of capital, you can still have uh, a very nice return on your investment, even if you are not the first in. So well, that's that's how we look at some of these markets that are going to be more competitive is to sort of wait, see how things fall out, and then uh, go in and support the uh, the guys who remain. Yeah, it's, it seems like a very, um, a very good strategy, actually. And uh, it looks like you'll be. Why? Well, thank you, Snowden. I <laughs> well, it, it looks like you'll also be going in at some point to Arizona, Nevada, and Oregon eventually. Is that right? 
Well, you know, we, we frequently have, you know, frequently, every day, you know, we've got discussions in sort of any state that we consider a positive state. So, you know, we would put into that bucket Arizona, Nevada, Oregon, Rhode Island, Florida. Um, you know, so when, you know, probably half a dozen other states that I'm forgetting where we have conversations. You know, it, it's really a matter of uh, return on capital. That's two things, actually. We want to find operators that actually we can see ourselves partnering with because obviously when you finance them you're married and we finance you know at, at the uh you know kind of very long term whether it's from a very long term uh fixed income perspective or very long equity investment yeah. so we're getting married so we want to find a great operator um then you know and then the the second piece is we want to ensure that you know we're actually in a, a pretty good market um and, you know, that's that's what we look for. So, you know, there's probably of the 28 uh, medical states and eight rec states, you know, half of those I would consider to be states that we'd be interested in. So, you know, you're going to be 15, 20 states. We're going to be talking with you know, good operators in. And, you know, some states are going to have better growth profiles than others. But it's really a matter of, you know, where you make the investment and kind of what your return is going to be. As long as you're with a good operator and you can structure the deal in a way that keeps your shareholders safe, you know, safe as can be. <laughs> yeah, um, as yeah, can it, be. It, that's key, that's a key yeah, phrase, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, exactly. um, I know you're aware of this. The, the legalized cannabis industry really is, um, if it's not the, it's among the fastest growing industries in, in the U.S. anyway, how is how is it up in Canada? I mean, do you see exponential growth since they since they made it legal across the board, or made medical illegal well, anyway? Yeah, I don't. I'm somewhat aware of what's going on in Canada because that's where we're listed. But you know, we don't make any investments in Canada, so right. I'm much more familiar with what's going on in the U.S. But you know, I think the the observation can be made across any market that's moving from black to white. So you look at the United States and, you know, the estimates run that there's a $50 billion black market. Well, that, that's basically a proven demand curve. I've done a lot of entrepreneurial things in my career, whether it's, you know, healthcare or content delivery networks. And one of the things you always struggle with when you go out to raise capital or tell your story is how many widgets are the customers going to buy? And you have to prove that concept. You have to believe it yourself. You have to sometimes put kind of belief ahead of the facts. In cannabis, I'm pretty certain there's a demand curve there. So you know, kind of the, the strengths and, and the skill sets that you need then sort of divert towards sort of more esoteric things like regulatory experience, financial experience, real estate experience, because it's about execution around delivering into a proven demand curve. So what does that mean? Let's say you've got a $50 billion reservoir of demand. Someone opens up the sluice and it's just rolling out. I think you know, it's six, seven billion of legal revenue in the United States last year. You just have a built-in growth curve, which, you know, frankly, it, it's probably one of the highest growing businesses, you know, fastest growing businesses in the world. But also the risk around that growth is pretty small. I mean, if you if you look at kind of the shift from black to white, you can be pretty certain that growth will continue, which really makes it a very valuable market in which investors ought to be taking a look at how they can uh, invest in securities. Um, and, you know, I think the market's actually undersized. You know, if you look at the 50 billion that exists today and sort of all the pundits uh, estimates, 
Yeah, that, that's people who are willing to break the law, right? They're picking up the phone or going to the, you know, their local bar and they're meeting with their dealer and doing something that's black market. I guarantee you a lot of people who 20 years ago uh, were using cannabis in college, they're not in the black market today. But once it becomes legal in their state, they will re-enter the market. And my estimation is that the cannabis market will be much broader than 50 billion. It'll probably look more like the beer or tobacco market, you know, be closer to an 80 or $90 billion market when you re when you bring back in the once casual user or with new product innovation, you bring in actual new, new users to it. Right. right. Well, and also the medical breakthroughs are bringing in, you know, new medical okay. users and, and the prove it's just, it's astonishing the science proving the efficacy and, you know, it's just completely undeniable. But, you know, the other thing about the black market, too, this is not just educated guesses based on, you know, polls. These are, you've got some pretty hardcore facts when you look at um, the criminal justice statistics as well. Like how, how much marijuana has been seized over the last, you know, 50 years and, um, and how many people have been incarcerated just for using it. And those numbers are in the millions, uh yeah no look it's it's clear it's a big market it's clear there's a built-in growth piece and you know i i personally think that the market itself will expand so you've got this situation where you've probably got a market growing from 50 billion to 80 billion that tracks broader legalization and then you have that shift of that 50 billion from black to white of which you've only sort of gotten through 12 or 13 percent of that shift so you know, the, the growth just goes on forever. And it's just ludicrous that there's no financing. I you know I feel like a kid in a candy shop, you know, having access to uh, access to equity capital or debt capital for our, our uh, uh, operating partners here in the U.S. It's, you know, it's um, it's a very unique uh, confluence of events and uh, feel very fortunate. We have a public vehicle and <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be a good, uh, good five or ten years for us. Yeah. Well, I, what do you tell people who are who are very skeptical still about investing in in cannabis uh, companies? Yeah, I say, look, it just always comes back to the basics. One of my mentors in the past told me the only long-term differentiator any company really has are its people. You know, patents can be uh, gotten around, uh, processes can be gotten around, you know, product quality can be copied. But if you have a good team and you're in a good market, you're going to find a way to make money. So, you know, especially in something like cannabis, I tell every investor, look at the team. What have they done? What are they doing? Are they saying things that they're getting done in the next quarter, the next year? And, you know, that's that's where it all starts, because the market opportunity clearly is there. And if you have a good team, they're going to figure out how to make money at it. They're going to have to figure out how to have good cash flow. And that's really the asset test. Good fundamental analysis, kick the tires around the team, and then monitor their performance through time. And, you know, I think if if you're an investor and you do that type of homework, you're going to make you're going to make good money in the sector. Yeah, I can imagine. And also, I would imagine that diversity is also key, not just putting all of your eggs in. If the company's yeah, not yeah. putting all of their yeah. eggs in one basket. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the, it's almost as if I asked you to ask that question. And one of the things we, 
you know, we look to in our own company is to ensure that we're across multiple markets with multiple operators so that people who invest in us aren't putting all their eggs in one basket. You're not, you don't have one point of risk uh, failure with us. You know, if something works in one state, great, doesn't work in another state, okay, these things happen. You know, there's, there's lots of companies that have one point of failure. They have sort of one project in one state, and you're making a pretty big bet that that's gonna be successful. Our view is to diversify that for our investors so they don't have to do that kind of uh, work because it's it's um, it's tough, right? And it's tough to figure out, especially in the U.S., which states are going to be more successful than other, which operators within those states are going to be more successful. So, yeah, well, <laughs> and also in, in each one of the operators that that your company invests in, it seems like each one of those are diversified as well. So it's not just dispensaries, it's not just cultivation, it's not just, you know, um, licensing or or whatever other pieces of the business. It it seems pretty well diversified. And and I I think that we've seen here in Arizona anyway, a lot of the the people who have – have spread around their business strategy with cultivation and with dispensaries, they seem to be better off than those that are focused mainly on just one thing or the other. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair point. You know, it's the, the industry, despite having been around for thousands of years, the business models are now being allowed to come out into the light and people are they're trying to figure out where you want to spend your time and energy and that will differ that'll differ based on your skill set and that will also differ based on sort of the regulatory environment in which you have to work and sometimes the rules of a state provide more uh, you know advantages to being a dispensary sometimes it adds more advantages to being a grower or a manufacturer and you know that's that's what people are going to figure out sometimes you know you can study something all you want but until you actually do it, you don't know. And that's why I think you'll see people who have had um, vertically integrated operations. You know, they may hive off the grow piece. They may then you know, decide to focus on the dispensary side or the processing side. You know, people are figuring it out as they go along. And I think through time, you'll see that disaggregate, disaggregation and specialization where people are good at things. You know, clearly someone who's really good at growing may not be really good at selling, right? You know, the retail or, or uh, patient experience in, in a clinic is going to be a much different skill set on how to deliver than, you know, growing uh, cost-effective, high-quality cannabis. You know, you, you, don't, you don't see the, you know, the physician uh, also be the person who makes the penicillin, right? <laughs> it yeah. doesn't exist in other businesses. So through time, I think it'll disaggregate in cannabis. But Currently, you're seeing more vertical piece, and that that lets people lay off some of the risk. If the value chain accrues towards the grow, they can shift that way. If the value chain sort of accrues towards the dispensary, they can shift that way. Right. One of the things I know has been a real challenge in this industry is money in research and clinical studies and that sort of thing. I mean, some of the universities are beginning to allocate funds toward research, but others just are not. And, I mean, how, how hard, what do you think the biggest challenges are in terms of raising money for the research and development side of this? Well, I think it clearly needs to be non-Schedule 1 because 
you know, you can't you can't get any funding if you're schedule one. Right. I mean, it's just just by definition has no medical use or value. And if you are, you know, a doctor at an academic center and you want to do research around cannabis, the paperwork to get the waiver to be allowed to do it. And then the quality of the cannabis you get out of wherever it is, Alabama or Mississippi, wherever that government grow is, you have no say or control over it. So it's just a big mess. You're just not going to get any research in the U.S. is sort of based in this protocol based, double blinded, any of the gold standards that you'd want to see from a research perspective until it's a different schedule. Yeah, well, once, it's, we, once it's a different schedule, I think, you know, applying for grants and supporting it, you know, I think you'll see that open wide up. Yeah, well, um, there are a couple that I know of right now that are going on that are double blind studies um, being sanctioned by like Drug Policy um, Alliance and um, taking place in clinical settings, mm-hmm. you know, and a, a few of them that I know of are already in, in phase two with FDA. Um, the, the FDA has actually sanctioned them despite the fact that it's uh, schedule one. But I know that for a lot of the researchers that I talk to, you know, just getting someone to believe in them enough to put money into it has been uh, such an enormous challenge. Well, I think at this point, you know, let's, let's call let's call it how it would be. I mean, it, it's basically a donation, right? I mean, right. for some for some, someone to do it, there's no there's no economic return to it. And you know, a real study, you know, is typically going to have a cost of two to five thousand dollars per enrolled uh, patient. You know, if you're doing a study, you're going to have a, at least halfway decent, you know, end on it. You're talking hundreds of patients. You'd like right. to have thousands. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big big tab, you know, so I I assume the studies you're talking about are probably, you know, 15 or 20 people with a small N and people, you know, doing a lot of uh, kind of donated time and effort to it just because there is a lack of real research around it. You know, I think back to my my old healthcare company, you know, we would treat thousands of uh, thousands of patients in a year and we probably had 90% of the patients on a protocol and we probably had um, you know, 10, 12 different protocols in place at any given time. And, you know, you just don't see that in cannabis, right? I mean, you go to any dispensary, I would be hard pressed if you picked one random that any of those patients are on a uh, protocol. Maybe they're on a registry protocol if the owner of that dispensary is, you know, pretty, uh, pretty savvy on uh, research. But you you have the odd study here and there, but it's it's not enough. You know, I think at the end of the day to shift anything. I think you don't see a big shift until you're, you know you deschedule it or reschedule it, and um, you know you get people who have a profit motive in there to start backing some of these studies. As you know, it's, it's anathema as it is to say, oh, we want to have big pharma. You know, development of drugs around any type of um, plant-based uh, extract is expensive. It takes time. It takes research. It takes a big balance sheet. And um, yeah, I think that that will be the tipping point around research is when you actually get a, a, a D or rescheduling of cannabis. Yeah. In the U.S. Yeah. In the U.S. In the right. U.S. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I know that there are so many people just longing for that day. We're a little bit nervous about what's going to happen um, if Sessions is approved, only because he's been very vocally against legalization of any kind. 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the rumor. You know, I dig into it. And, you know, my view is people view stuff through the lenses that they're wearing. If you were, if I were, I don't have them in front of me, if I were to dig up quotes from Holder, Lynch, and Sessions and read them out to you, I would defy you to tell me who said what. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, mean, I think you're probably right. And, uh... I, mean, I mean, these are, these are attorney generals. They, you know, to, you know, that their job is to uphold the law. I mean, people completely ignored that the head of, uh, Hillary Clinton's transition team was the ex-AG of Colorado. You know, just Google him up sometime and see what his view of cannabis was. He wrote open letters decrying the legalization of cannabis. Yeah. And yet Colorado developed just fine. I think your initial observation that the will of the people will push this forward is exactly right. There may be some setbacks along the way, but this is clearly, you know, something that close to 90% now of, of individuals believe in medical cannabis of some sort mm-hmm. and 60% believe in full rec. You know, you've got mid 60s support in Congress. It's going to happen. I can't tell you if it's going to happen in one year, five years, whatever, but it is, you know, the, the battle has been won. It's just a matter of sort of, you know, how quickly the field will be swept. And you know, I don't have the crystal ball on that. So, you know, could be, could be at the midterm elections. It could be, you know, two administrations from now, but it'll happen. Yeah, it, it's inevitable. I mean, it's it's something that must happen, I believe, with all my heart. And, you know, one of the reasons we're trying to raise awareness in, you know, and especially trying to reach um, people who just are uncertain about uh, how they feel about it. So we should probably start winding down. But <laughs> I wanted to ask... If there's anything that you'd really like for our listeners to know and understand about the business just in general, just last well, thoughts. Yeah, I think I think anyone who's looking at it from a business perspective, I guess there's a couple of ways of thinking this. You know, if it's someone who's trying to get into the business, um, it really is a business. So, you know, if you're not prepared to work, 60, 70 hours a week and throw your life savings into it and, um, you know, actually pay an inordinate amount of taxes and have regulatory burden and oversight, you know, just save yourself a lot of time and effort and, you know, <laughs> keep your day job because it's a real business, right? I mean, it's it's not uh, just, you know, growing a plant and making money. It's, uh, uh, you know, you've got uh, uh, all the usual things you have from a business perspective, you know, HR and um, you know, location and quality and customer service, but you also have that cannabis regulatory overlay and a lack of capital. So not for the faint of heart, you know, the stories you read about in the paper are the guys who've been successful. Um, and, you know, so I'd say that from a business perspective, but it is a great business. It's a lot of fun. There's great people in it. It's cutting edge. You know, there's that built in growth piece to it. So that aspect, but, you know, just be forewarned, it's, it's not a walk in the park. Um, I'd say from the investing side, you know, if you have the type of balance sheet where you can make investments privately yourself, you know, I would you know, probably have, you know, five-ish percent of your portfolio carved out for it. It is very high risk. It is against the law federally after all. And, you you know, I think actually even bigger risk are sort of the whims of the, the municipalities or states that oversee you. I mean, you just look at what happened in Massachusetts. You had uh, full legalization passed by the will of the people. 
supposed to start January 1 and then sort of in a midnight move, you know, six legislators got together and said, hey, we're going to make it July 1st instead of January 1. You know, those things happen. And, you know, that's that's a risk from a private investment perspective. I think if you're investing publicly, um, do your homework, uh, look for appropriate disclosure, look at who the management team is, do a little Google search. Amazing what you can find out. Pick your investment by your team. I think the market opportunity is so huge that, you know, if you pick the right team, you're probably going to be okay. But then that would be kind of how I approach sort of all three things there. Did, did that answer your question? Oh, absolutely. It did. Absolutely. It did. And I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be very uh, bumpy ride for some, but it, it is the wild west out there still because <laughs> it's the land of opportunity. I mean, how many industries right now are in their infancy, even though, you know, this has come a long way. It really, in the scope of things, it, you might consider it in its infancy. Wouldn't that be correct? Oh, yeah. People say to me, oh, what inning are we in? I'm like, they haven't even built the, the baseball stadium. Exactly. It is, you know, you look at the large, you know, Colorado sort of the most um, mature regulated market that we have. California's obviously been around a lot longer, but they don't have a state regulatory oversight in there yet. So if you think of Colorado as the analog for what the market might look like, you know, the largest market share um, company in Colorado probably has seven or eight percent market share. So, and you still have you know six hundred doorfronts and probably four hundred competitors. That's you know, that's a very 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 early stage market. And you still have the black market. You know, estimates are Colorado still has twenty five percent of the demands being met by the black market. So you haven't even finished that aspect. And you know, you're just seeing tremendous innovation on products, whether it's on the medical side or recreational side. That's in its infancy, right? I mean, just yeah. the fact that people have been able to come out of the woodwork and can, you know, have a real lab or you know, kind of access to real machinery and and do crazy things from a product perspective. I think we're just seeing the beginning of that, just you know, touching it. And you've seen that from the consumer perspective, right? You've seen a shift from ninety percent flour to like fifty percent flour in some markets in Colorado. As people say. They vote with their pocketbook. You know, I need. I want to take this as a spray. I want to take this as a vape. I want to whatever it is. You know, people are uh, you know saying I like I like different you know, different ways of uh, consuming or treating myself from a, a drug perspective. And I think you'll see that continue. Yeah, I, I agree. And also, as more awareness uh, comes out, I think people don't really understand or realize that that hemp-based products, too, are legal in any state. You can order them across state lines. You can import them from Canada or Europe or anything like that without any legal ramifications, although the states where they haven't legalized medical marijuana, they certainly aren't going to come right out and tell you that. (laughs) Although I I, I do find one of the most amusing things of all is, you know, you can buy like the best hemp oil from like Czech or Poland or something like that, and it arrives in Colorado. And before you can put it on your legal dispensary or retail store, before you can put it on the shelf, you actually have to infuse a little bit of THC in it because you're not allowed to sell pure CBD oil. Right. <laughs> I, just, I just find that hysterical that you can like, ship this hemp oil across the world, but you can't sell it in your regulated store unless you like infuse it a little bit. I know. It's very bizarre, <laughs> but I, eventually that's going to catch up too. <laughs> it's, it's all going to catch up. And you know, look, it's, a, it's a, just it's this wonderful, grand experiment that you see, right? You know, I, I meet with regulators all the time, and yeah, they say, well, we, 
we're inventing it as we go along as well. And, you know, it's we're going to get there. We're going to we're going to find out what works, what doesn't work. You've got, you know, all these different states trying things. They all they all know about the other states. They all go on tours of each other's you know, states. They all talk with each other. We're going to meander ourselves in the grand American fashion towards the right answer. Just, you know, just just let the states figure it out, let the states copy themselves, let the consumers and the patients drive what's needed and we'll get there. Is it always going to be smooth and seamless? Is it going to be messy? Yes. Is it going to be chaos? Sure. But we'll get there eventually. And it's, it's a lot of fun being on the business side of it. It's a lot of fun working with great operators. It's a lot of fun talking with you know, people like yourself about the trends in the industry. It's just, uh, it's just a, it's a great place, great place to be. Yeah. It's like a great industry to be in for sure. Very exciting. So, uh, Hadley Ford, I would like to just say thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your knowledge and insights and, um, I hope we can uh, talk about this again soon because obviously things are going to keep changing for the better. So thank you. Oh, my my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. And anytime you'd like to have me on again, I'd be more than pleased. Um, and uh, just let me know. Great. Well, thank you. So if you'd like to learn more about the work of Hadley Ford and Ianthus, please visit us at thecannabisreporter.com. Click broadcast to find today's episode, and we will post more information with a link to their website. I would also like to thank Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update. He'll be back again next week. And a million thank yous to our producer, Wendy West, and the team at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine. And of course, to our supporters this week, Hemp Meds and Pure CBD Zephyr Labs, we really appreciate your support. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. Tune in again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling, evergreen is always